context of what's happening here. Now, the general gist of what's going on here is that Jesus found a blind man by the, and he, he healed him. He was begging uh, because he couldn't find a job, of course. He could, uh, people who were blind back then, they didn't really have any opportunities to sustain themselves independently. So he was begging in order to survive. Jesus found him. He healed him, but he healed him in a very interesting way. Um, that wasn't that is unique to every other healing of blind men in the Gospels, and he did it in such a way where it wasn't necessary to do it this way, but he did it that way anyway. Um, and so this man he receives his sight, and after receiving his sight, uh, he's questioned, and he goes about it in a way where sometimes, if you guys think about evangelism. Sometimes it can bring anxiety to you and maybe feelings of discomfort and awkwardness when you start thinking about telling someone about Jesus Christ. How do I, how do I even begin that conversation with someone? But if you look at this man, he actually did it in a very natural way. And it wasn't forced. It was providentially prepared, the situation. And he was faithful as much as he could be faithful with the knowledge that he currently had during that time. Right? So, it's helpful in evangelism, but let's, let's dig a little deeper, and let's look at the context of this. First of all, by this time in Jesus' ministry, he has about five to six months left before he's crucified. And if you know your gospel account and the story of Jesus' life, the closer he got to his crucifixion, the clearer the separation between Belief and unbelief existed among his followers. The closer he got to his death, the clearer, the more polarizing he became. Um, some people, they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't believe he was the Savior. Others, they firmly believed in the fact that he was the Messiah and Savior. So there were religious leaders who were becoming more hostile against Jesus as it, he, as it got closer to him and to his death. One commentator put it this way, the last five or six months of Jesus' of Jesus's life were filled with controversy and with attempts on the part of the priests and the scribes to trap him by his words or his actions. Jesus, however, being fully aware of their designs, maintained his usual ministry and became bolder in his resistance. This was also the time during the Jewish festival uh, that was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the word tabernacle, if you're unfamiliar with it, it basically is another word for tent. And so it was a feast of tents. And it comes from, it's, it, it celebrated the harvest of the, Jewish, uh, of the Jewish life. And where it began was when, they, when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. Now, for those of you who know your Old Testament history, you know that wasn't a good time. <laughs> you know when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered into the promised land? Uh, it was 40 years of failure. Failure of the Israelites to trust God. Failure of the Israelites to show courage in taking the promised land. So the question stands, why in the world would there be an entire celebration based upon failure? Spiritual failure, national failure. Why would there be that kind of a celebration? 
And the thing is, the reason why this festival exists is because they rejoiced in the fact that they were pilgrims in their land and they were returning home. Okay, that was the emphasis. And what's important is, is that in the midst of human failure, God has a perfect plan that he works through very broken people uh, to bring his people back home. That's what the feast is about. The Feast of Tents, the Feast of Tabernacles, that's what it's celebrated. And it's significant that Jesus did this healing during this time. I want to show you three things that come out in this passage. But before I do, um, I want to talk about a little bit concerning healing, uh, healing the blind in all four Gospels. Now, this passage that we just read has the most descriptive detail concerning healing the blind. Um, In the Gospels, there are general narrative statements saying that the blind were healed. But there are also specific cases where more descriptive uh, time uh, language was devoted. In all of the incidences, minus the general statements of healing, In all of the specific cases, when Jesus healed the blind, he touched them. That's a common denominator. He touched them. Secondly, there is only one case of all the incidents that Jesus healed the blind. There is only one case of Jesus using saliva directly upon the eyes outside of this passage. Well, uh, period, actually. Jesus, in this passage, he used the saliva on on the dirt. He made it into mud and then applied it to the eyes of the blind man. But there's only one, one case of Jesus using saliva directly, which is in Mark 8. There's also only one case of, using, of Jesus using mere words. He just says, go your way, your faith has made you well. And that one incident has been recorded twice in the Gospel accounts, once in Mark 10 and once in Luke 18. The reason why I'm telling you all this uh, seemingly boring detail, unless you're really interested in this stuff, is because Jesus didn't have to physically do anything to heal the blind. He didn't have to physically touch them. He didn't have to apply saliva. He didn't have to make mud and make some kind of mixture in order to facilitate the healing process. He didn't have to do that. So the question emerges, why did Jesus, in our passage, go through all this? Why would he go through so many physical steps when he could have just healed the man with his words alone, which he did in Mark 10 and Luke 18? It's not an issue of Jesus' ability. He raised the dead man, okay? The dead man, okay, we're not talking about clinical deadness. We're talking about really dead, right? He raised the dead. We're not talking about being in a coma or being in some kind of vegetative state. Okay, this is deadness, real real death. He raised a dead man. The man was entombed for four days. And he raised him from the grave. Okay, so it's definitely not a question of Jesus' ability to heal. What it does here, the reason why Jesus did all this, is he's pointing back to creation. 
He's showing I am the creator and I am doing something brand new here. I am recreating right now. Right? And that's part of the reason why Paul says, I am a new creation. Right? You put off the old self and you put on the new. It's the same image. There's a recreation going on. And so the healing work that Jesus did here, it was very intentional. It wasn't just because he was doing something extra or because he needed help with the healing. He was teaching us. He was teaching his audience something about salvation. That he came to save and to bring a new creative work into the hearts and into the lives of people. And it was only he who, who could do it. There's also a focus on the experience of the blind man receiving the healing. Think about it. Jesus didn't have to go through using saliva, making mud, applying it to the eyes, and telling. And Jesus didn't have to rely on the pool of Siloam to help him heal the blind man. He told him, after he applied the mud to his eyes, he told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. It wasn't Jesus' thing. To, he didn't need that. And so the whole reason that he did all this was not for himself. He did it for the experience of the person that he was healing. This is important because, number one, what he's teaching is, I came to save. I am the creator. I am making a new creation out of people. And the way I'm going about that is I am emphasizing the experience of the people who need the healing. Right? And what he's doing is he's disproving contemporary myths for teaching truth. Right? For example, washing in the pool of Siloam, that it could bring healing somehow. So it's not the pool of Siloam that heals. And this is interesting because we're called Siloam, right? And in one sense, if you want to connect it to our vision and our ministry, it's not this specific ministry and this specific church that is, that is special, right? Our calling and our vision is not to be somehow special, more special than other churches, Right? Our calling is to be faithful and fruitful and to be used by the hands of our master, of our savior, of our creator. It's to be a place that God can use, not because he needs us, but a place that God can use to bring healing to people. And if it happens, if healing happens, it's not because we're so great. It's because Jesus is at work. Right? And he didn't choose us because we were great. He, he just chose us because it was in his providence. It was in his plan. And to be able to be a ministry where we can have this, this missional uh, heart to serve people and to be available for hurting and broken people who need healing and to genuinely not desire credit to ourselves when someone does find spiritual healing here, right? To genuinely say, no, it wasn't me, right? And to genuinely feel it's not me. And even if, if it's through someone else, it's okay because it's not about me. It's not about Siloam, it's about Christ. To be a place like that, right? I want to show you three things when it comes to our vision and our mission. Number one, suffering. When you think of Siloam and the mission of Siloam, so we see Christ-centered identity, 
Christ-centered relationships and Christ-centered mission, right? There is the idea of suffering, first of all. Secondly, there is the idea of theology being applied, applied theology. And thirdly, there's the idea of life change, okay? Suffering, theology applied, and life change. These three all point to one thing, and that's the glory of God. If you look at this passage, that's what it's all about. It's about the glory of God. It's not about the glory of the pool, the glory of the process of healing the blind man, right? It was congenital blindness, by the way. He was blind from birth, right? Um, but it's about the glory of God. Number one, suffering. Suffering points to the glory of God. At this time, the disciples asked, when they saw the blind man who was blind from birth, they asked the theological question. It was a, it was a means of having a theological discussion. They asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because that was the popular way of thinking. And we covered this somewhat last week when we're talking about relationships, right? Sometimes we blame people and their moral actions or their misactions, and they say, your life is the way it is because you made some really poor choices, right? They believe this too. The fact that they question this, assuming that someone was morally at fault for his blindness, it reveals the fact that they had this kind of thinking, in theology, we call this retribution theology, right? where God physically punishes those who sin against him. And similar to the Luke 13 passage that we looked at last week, the people who were massacred by Pontius Pilate and the 18 people who were crushed by the Tower of Siloam, the same kind of thinking was there. They got that kind of punishment because they deserved it. They must have done something really morally bad for God to treat them that way, right? They should have decided better. They should have chosen better. They should have been smarter or wiser or holier or more godly. Now, Jesus' answer here is that he says that the blindness is not because of any sin committed. Remember, this person was blind from birth. And Jesus is saying his congenital blindness is not because of his parents or him, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, verse 3. That the works of God might be displayed. What you're talking about there, God only works in consistency to who he is. In other words, God, everything that God does, it comes from who God is. Right? And when you're talking about the characteristics of God, in other words, who God is and how it, it, it is displayed, you're talking about glory. That's what God's glory is. God's glory is his nature displayed. Right. And what Jesus is saying, he's, he's showing the main difference between the way that people thought commonly back then with physical ailments and with him is that it's not punishment but it's an opportunity okay so Jesus is saying suffering is not punishment it's an opportunity an opportunity for God to display who he is and what he has done you know our way of thinking of suffering is not that it's, it's not right either today in modern what, what's popular today right 
what do we, how, do, how does our society think of suffering today? Well, we're a postmodern society. We don't believe in absolute truth. We don't believe in a God who punishes. That's so archaic. What we believe in is that matter has existed and there's no meaning to it. Okay, you can make it life as meaningful as you would like, but ultimately there's no meaning. And if people suffer or if people are born with a silver spoon in their mouths, it's by chance. And you just get dealt a good hand or a, bad, or a bad hand. It's pure luck. And the reasoning is, you can't control that. It just comes to you. There's no meaning behind it. There's no God who dispenses that. You just get it, and then the best thing you can do as a human being is just enjoy it and be thankful. And what they say for those, of, for those born with suffering, um, they say, well, you should do something about it. <laughs> and you see, it's, it's the same in that sense. The responsibility comes back to the person. And um, it's a lot of guilt, it's a lot of oppression, it's a, it's a big burden. Jesus, Jesus' answer is completely different. It's not suffering, nor is it chance. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified. This is the way that we need to look at those who suffer around us. This is the way that we need to look at our suffering as we grow here at Salom. Suffering is not a punishment, nor is it random chance. Okay? Suffering is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to glorify God and for God's work to be displayed in us. At the cross... Christ took on all of God's punishment for our sins, okay? So all of our sins, past, present, and future, Christ has already been punished for that. Now, there are natural consequences for our actions here in this world, but as far as divine punishment goes, Christ has taken care of it. It's done. So if you are driving in Atlanta and you get into a car accident, it's not because you didn't read your Bible that day. God is not punishing you for that. Or it's not because you're not praying enough, or it's not because you didn't give money to that homeless person one block away. Okay? It's because God wants to glorify himself through you right now. And he's going to send people who are going to witness how you respond in your suffering. Are you going to respond with complaining and with regret? Are you going to respond understanding that this is from God and that ultimately God will reveal himself through your suffering? And it's okay to suffer because God is going to make himself famous right now. Um, So there's suffering in our mission. And so when we, as a church, when we reach out to people who are suffering, right, to the needy, right, you can't just tell them, hey, stop begging for money and go get a job, right? It's a pretty cynical urban response, right? I know because I thought like that and I've said that before, going to school, right, going to college, I've said that. Um... Suffering is an opportunity for God to glorify himself, okay? 
Now, with that theology, with that kind of thinking, we moved on to applied theology, application. All right? Applied theology points to God. When you look at verse 4, it says, We must work, this is what Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. This is very cryptic. What does Jesus mean? Well, what he means is he's talking about his life here on earth when he was alive. While it is day, that's when he's alive and walking about doing these miracles and healing people and bringing the gospel to people. When he says night is coming, he's talking about his death that's coming. Okay? Remember when I said that the, Jew, the religious leaders were becoming more and more hostile and then people who believed in Jesus as the Savior and people who didn't believe in Jesus as the Savior, it became more, more polarizing? That's what he's talking about. Night is coming. He's aware of that. It's getting closer. He has only a few months before he dies. And he says when no one can work. What he's saying is when he's crucified, no one is going to be able to do anything. He's not going to be able to heal people anymore, okay, at least not physically. And the disciples are going to be nowhere to be found to do anything without him because they're going to be cowardly hiding so that they don't die as well. Right. Now, in this, there's a tremendous amount of theology that is connected with this one little statement in this verse. Just by saying what he said in verse 4, Jesus has made a statement on theology proper, which is the doctrine of God, everything about who God is, the nature of God, and, how, and his relationship to the world. We call that theology proper. Okay. He's talking about salvation, in other words, soteriology. He's talking about who he is and what he has come to do. We call that Christology. He's talking about the end when it comes. That's eschatology. He's talking about why he came, because of the sin in this world. That's called hamartiology. He's talking about why he was sent. That's missiology. And he's talking about there will be people who will work, and there will be a time when no one will be able to work. That's the community of believers, the church. We call that ecclesiology. Now, why am I listing this off to you? I'm listing it off because... Mission begins with a proper theology. It begins with the right ideas and concepts about God and about us. You see, what happens in mission sometimes? Well, you have two extremes. You have the church that never really does any missions, that's just really self-centered and indulgent upon itself. A lot of programs for the church itself, but it never reaches out to anyone in need. You have that extreme. And then you have the other extreme. The church that is really involved with missions, with reaching out to the needy and the poor, but they completely compromise on, on all their theology. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in the authority of the scripture. They don't believe in, in the fact that Jesus is God anymore, that, he's, he, that he was the savior. They deny all that, but then they get very involved with helping people, right? And... The reason why I'm saying this is because a proper mission for our ministry, you have to have theology and living out that theology. You need to have the right theological concepts and also 
right theological living and action. When when you look at verses 6 through 7, the first thing that comes up in verse 6 is Jesus saying, having said these things. What this shows, this little phrase in verse 6, what it shows is that there's a direct connection between thinking and doing. There's a direct connection between proclamation and living. Jesus, after having said these things, all these theological concepts, compactly, densely, you know, built in into that one statement in verse 4, verses 4 through 5, he immediately lives out his theology. Okay? Jesus' actions to heal came as a result of his awareness of the purpose of his life on earth. There is a direct connection between how, what Jesus is doing for someone else and what he thinks he is living for. Okay? There's also a focus on the experience. I've mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon. Jesus is focused on the experience of the person. He spat on the ground, made mud with saliva, anointed the man's eyes, and he told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Jesus didn't have to go through all these physical motions. He did it for that person. Why is this important for a blind man? For a, for a man who's blind from birth, who's never, who's never had the experience of seeing even for one second of his life. Why is that important? Well... It shows that someone cares. It shows that someone is willing to get close enough to that person to touch him. Because if you were blind or crippled, or if you had leprosy or whatever, you were an outcast. Okay? It's, not where, it's not like American society where we, from Christian principles, we have this understanding, this social understanding that we need to reach out to those who are less fortunate than us. Right? Um, they didn't have that. And what Jesus is doing for this person is he's showing them, hey, you are in the process of being healed. It's a teaching moment. It's a caring moment. It's a shepherding moment. And you see all of Jesus' actions for the other. His mission is centered upon what that person needs. I mention this because there are times when ministries, they get involved with missions Right? And we do it for ourselves. Sometimes we leave a mess in the place that we go for missions, whether it be a Native American ministry, inner city ministry, or something international. And we leave a mess, and we do what we want to do, and then we go. This is why there are missionaries out there who actually ask some churches not to come back. Right? Because sometimes you give too much unnecessary things that ultimately create more problems than solve. For example, a lot of times in domestic missions, sometimes we give a lot of candy and toys for free. But what that creates, and this is not only domestic, but it's also international. You give a lot of free stuff, but that kind of giving creates a culture of entitlement year after year. 
So you see, it's great that you go over and you pour out your funds and you do a lot for a community that may need help. But missions needs to be bigger than that. It needs to be bigger than, hey, look what I did. It's not show and tell time, right? Well, it is, but it's, we're not showing and telling about ourselves. We're showing and telling about God's glory, who he is, right? Um, so he did it for the experience of that person. And lastly, there's life change. Life change points to God's glory. When there is this powerful effect where Jesus brings healing to people through us as a medium, when we go on missions, when we show mercy, God will do, God will work life change in people. People will see change in your life. They will respond in belief or disbelief. What, what the man here kept doing was he, was, he kept saying, I am the man that used to be blind from birth. Some people believed in him. Some people said, no, he's not. You're not that guy, right? You're, you're the old, you're someone else, right? You're not this new guy, right? Um, who received sight when you were blind. Uh, people will seek the cause of change. So the first thing that will happen is that people will notice that there's something very different. They'll see that there's a change. And the second thing they'll do is they'll seek the cause. What's going on? Why did this happen? How did this happen? They said, they said to him, to the man who used to be blind, then how were your eyes opened? And this is what the man does, and this is what we should do in missions. We must point them to Jesus Christ. What Jesus did, how do you do that? You've got to point to what he did for you. You got to point to who he is. He's God, he's Savior, he's Lord. And when people ask, where is he? Well, you got to show that he's not of this world. But at the same time, he's living in us. If we are going year after year of our lives and we are not showing that life change to people, that that evidence that there is something really different about you. The way you talk, the way you respond, right? Even when you fail, even when you get upset because you're human, even how you follow up with that, um, there's something different. What, what, what is it? You know? Um, there needs to be that. Now, and as I'm closing out here, now, just in case you guys feel like, you know, this is kind of like seeking perfectionism, it's not. Let me give you an example of a man who was actually, uh, who was a Canadian man who was born blind, and he got a chance to see for the first time at age 68. This is from the Daily Mail. Um, and in the article it said, with the repair of his vision, he got surgery for it. Thomas said he feels like a child all over again. Now there are some, I, I'm, not, I'm not an eye expert, but I did text our resident optometrist about <laughs> certain facts. So um, if I misspeak, 
It might be me, but it might be not me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, this is, so basically, there are some congenital blindness that can be healed and that cannot be healed. But there, at, generally, overall, there's no, there's no cure for blindness yet. They're working on it. But this man, the way he was able to see, even though he had congenital, uh, even though he was blind from birth, was because it was just purely a simple of just taking away the cataracts that he had. So it was a simple procedure, and there there are so many reasons why you can be blind. But this man had one of those reasons where surgery could correct it. Uh, and then the article says, with the repair of his vision, Thomas said he feels like a child all over again. Isn't that what it feels like when you first come to know who Jesus really is? You feel like a child, right? I find everything beautiful, he said. Faces, skin, I find it all beautiful. Thomas's newfound vision has caused a few problems, though as he has to learn everything over again as if he were a child. It's also the same for salvation. When you first realize that with Jesus, he is everything, and without him, you have nothing, you begin to realize that everything that you thought and felt was wrong, and you have to relearn how to live life all over again. When he uh, went to the corner store with his sister, he handed the cashier a $10 bill when he really should have handed a $5 bill. Colors still confuse him, and the first time he stepped out in, onto a sixth-floor balcony, the drop-down gave him vertigo. The idea of remembering things visually is hard as well, and he still resorts to touching and feeling the world around him to store those memories. Okay? What I want to show you is that this is the vision, this is our mission. Our mission, you, we need to have, right? Siloam, the word means sent. We need to have this idea where we are sent. Our life, the purpose of our life is to be sent for the glory of God. And the reason why we need to think that way is because Christ has been sent for us to die and suffer for us. We need to live that out. And the fact that we're sinners and imperfect and that we make mistakes should not paralyze us or should not cause us to have reason to excuse ourselves from living a very passionate, zealous, holy life. Right? Because that's so easy to do. You can fall into the trap, which is not the gospel, by the way, of thinking that since Christ forgave me, that's all I need now. You need grace, you need mercy and forgiveness, but faith without works is dead as well. Right? There needs to be this life change that people notice. Right? Now, with that in mind, I think this, this incident of this 68-year-old man receiving sight and him feeling like a child and having to learn, relearn how to live life, and also... Sometimes, even after finding his vision, he had to rely on living his life back when he was blind. He had to touch the world 
to go through life sometimes instead of relying on sight. Um, that's kind of like the Christian life right now before heaven. Okay? That's what it's like. And sometimes, because we're still sinful, even though we're saved, we will resort to things when we were spiritually blind. We will resort to values and identities and approaches to human relationships that do not accurately reflect the fact that Christ has opened our eyes unto salvation. And so we will act and live out sometimes in a way that, live out our lives in such a way that we will be acting like if we're still blind, like if we're still unsaved. But you see, that mixture, right, should not be a reason to just only believe half of the gospel, thinking that that is the whole gospel. There needs to be life change. And I know, come, being a second generation ministry, I know the danger of emphasizing responsibility and duty, but that fear and that anxiety and that sensitivity and can I say lovingly, that hypersensitivity, we can admit that, right? To moral responsibility, to holiness and godliness, right? It should not paralyze us. Because you have to remember, yes, we're still sinful. But it's also true that we have been made to see. And so we must stop relying, we must rely less and less upon our spiritually blind habits and learn as a child more and more what it means to live life as a spiritually seeing person. That is our mission. Right? And the way to do, have that balance where you don't start emphasizing responsibility to the point where you fall into legalism is you always have to remember your theology. The reason why we live our lives in a way that we understand that we are people who are sent, right, to show mercy to others, to reach out to others in a holy, godly way, is because Christ has been sent to us. And when you constantly remind yourself that Christ has been sent for you, you will never be able to stand in a place of legal, legalistic superiority or pride because that theology, that fact that Christ has been sent for you will break you each time. It will break your pride. It will break your, your inclination to credit yourself because you know that it's because of Christ that you do what you, you do what you do. And if people notice something different about you, if people notice something great that's happening in your life, you know you can only say it's Christ. One of the things that helps me, and I'm going to close with this, anytime something great happens, right, and I feel like God is really using me, anytime I feel that way, Okay, 
what really helps me get back to what really helps me be put back in my place is when I remember my past sins. That helps me. When I remember how much I failed Christ, and I remember it in specific detail, and then, but you can't end with that, then you end with guilt. <laughs> and then you remember how much, even though you've sinned so bad, how much Christ still loves you and forgives you. And that helps me so much. That helps me to, now I'm not successful all the time, but I'm telling you, as a general principle, whenever God is doing something in your life, remember those specific sins that you failed in, and then also remember that despite those sins, God, Christ, loves you, and he's forgiven you, and he has commissioned you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together and for allowing us to look into this passage to see um, what it means to be sent and to what it means to live a life that is sent, that is defined by Christ sending us out. So Lord, we ask that, I ask that you work in our hearts so that we can reach out to those who, who are needy with mercy with love, and if there is anything noticeable in us that's different, if people thank us, if people recognize something good that's happening here, Lord, help us to remember that it's not because of anything special that we are. Help us to remember those specific sins that you have forgiven. And help us to just joyfully celebrate who Christ is and what he has done for me, for us, and for those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please arise with me as we sing our response song.